Welcome to Candid Catholic Convos, a program brought to you by the Catholic Diocese of Harrisburg. Our mission is to humanize the church and help you to grow in your faith, love, and understanding. I'm your host, Rachel Trochet, a cradle Catholic who's only human and struggled with faith on more than one occasion. Each week, you'll hear engaging, down-to-earth interviews and actionable strategies you can implement into your life with ease to help you grow closer to God. If you're ready to open your heart and step fully into the person God created you to be, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Candid Catholic Convos. So I left you on a little bit of a cliffhanger last week about why women can't be priests in the Catholic Church. I got some comments that people were sort of shaking their fists at their listening devices. And I'm sorry for the wait, but I promise you it will be worth it. Because today, we're continuing our conversation with Father Sawicki, picking up right where we left off last week. We're finally going to answer the question about why women can't be priests, as well as dive into the infallibility of the Bible, apocryphal texts, and the difference between being good versus being saved. Check it out. So, like, for instance, in a lot of other non-Catholic churches, there are women as pastors or leaders of their church family, but there are none in the Catholic church, like no women as priests or bishops or anything like that, which leads people who are not Catholic to an argument that the Catholic church is against women, which we know is not true. But for argument's sake, why can't women be priests? That's a pertinent question, and it's something that is going to stay pertinent for as long as I'm alive. And that's, you know, hopefully many more decades, I pray. But it's a reality because we're in this, we're in an environment where we think that uh, positions equal authority, positions uh, and, and glass ceilings and stained glass ceilings and whatnot. I worked closely with a, in one of my previous assignments, with a lady who was a campus minister and a former Lutheran pastor. And she was a committed Lutheran pastor. And then she she came to the point, she said, I had to become Catholic because I knew that this is what the church, what Jesus wanted of me in his prayer that we all be one. And we said, well, how would you talk about what you did as a Lutheran pastor and, you know, women's ordination, for instance? And she said, I knew I was a minister of the gospel, but I knew I was not standing in the person of Christ because I was a woman. And even as a Lutheran, she it was a it was not ordination in the same sense as the Catholics practice ordination that you're made another Christ, an alter Christus, okay, that you're able to act in the person of Christ. What Luther started in fifteen seventeen with the Protestant Reformation in Germany was that they were ministers of the gospel because there was uh, a separation from faith and from and kind of basically it was a separation from an incarnational type of religion. You know, it was everything was an exa- a, a expression of faith, not faith uh, incarnate in this fallen, sinful world. Okay, and that's where the famous anecdote was that Luther looked at the human person as a dunghill covered in snow, as the, the, the corrupt human person covered with the grace of Jesus Christ. And so they would say, you can't be ontologically changed that your soul is configured to the Christ because Christ would never do something with so utterly corrupt. 
Now, modern day Lutherans might not take that, take that direct teaching, but strict Calvinists would. Okay. So that, that was a helpful for me to understand how even some Protestants, Protestant Christians saw ordination and, and, uh, quote, ministerial ministry, okay? Ultimately, what John Paul II, St. John Paul II, definitely, definitively taught was that the church didn't have the authority to ordain women because Christ himself didn't ordain women. Mm-hmm. Now, people will say, well, Jesus was bound by social convention. He couldn't choose women as leaders because this would have been totally uh, against first century Palestinian mores. Since when did Jesus, was Jesus bound by social convention in anything that he did? My goodness, he speaks to a a Samaritan woman alone at the well. You know, he goes and uh, lifts up uh, Samaritans as as being good as as opposed to the priests and Levites. He hung out with tax collectors. Tax collectors and sinners. I mean, cavorted with, you know, people who knew how to have a good time. They were called drunkards. Since when is Jesus bound by social convention? And and Mary of all the, the first of all the disciples, she was there's no evidence that she was you know or or ever ordained as as one of the 12 were. So there's the example of Jesus that we have to follow. And then there's the constant practice of the church. Now, there's a problem sometimes in the church in the current moment where just because someone's ordained doesn't mean they're the smartest person in the room with either even things theological. Like, I'm not an expert in biomedical ethics. I got to call someone. I get one of those humdinger questions. It's like, oh, my gosh, what's the moral thing to do? Because this is a little, this is complicated and my mind doesn't, isn't. So I have to call up someone. And I, I think that, and this is what, our, our Holy Father Pope Francis is trying to convey and getting like getting the practice across that we have to engage the entire Christian faithful and give them maybe not governance, which is tied to the ordination of bishops. Bishops, we believe, have this charism of governance in the church, but that we have to find these people in the church and make sure that they are listened to, that that whole um, synodal um, synod on synodality to understand what does it mean that we draw these people together. You know, we priests are not there. There could be priests who are excellent educators and administrators, but just because you're a priest doesn't mean that you should have the final say when it comes to curriculum changes in in a school, for instance, moral theology, scripture. Some of the, I mean, I might have had one priest, scripture professor. The, the most brilliant scripture professor when I was at Mount St. Mary's Seminary was a consecrated virgin, Sister Joan Gormley, God rest her. I mean, she was just absolutely brilliant. And anybody who says that women don't have a say in the church, I don't think are as closely intimately involved in the life of the church. I think that they really do uh, when push comes to, when push comes to really shove or when you really see how decisions are made, that they are active in the life of the church in our in our own diocese and i think in theologians engaged on the universal level in the holy see that there are those female theologians so i mean w- women are not excluded they're not ordained but that doesn't mean that they don't have a voice it doesn't mean that they don't have authority now if authority is you do whatever you want to do well, nobody has that authority in the church because we still have the, the teachings that Christ handed on to us that we have to be faithful to. So again, sometimes people say, well, we want authority so we can change things the way we want them. Well, 
when we cease to become Catholic because we abandon what's been handed on to us. It's important, like what St. Paul said, I receive from the Lord what I also handed on to you. Now, he was speaking about the Last Supper and the institution of the Eucharist, but that's the entire tradition of the Church. We have to hand on what's been handed on to us and not just mold it after our own whims and fancies in any given age. You're absolutely right. And I had had um, Samantha Pavlock, she's the editor-in-chief of this publication called Femme Catholic, and we were talking about the stance of, oh, the church is anti-women. And she's like, have you seen some of our saints? You know, <laughs> we have female doctors of the church. Like you, like you said, female theologians. Mother Teresa was this incredible <laughs> business. Like she ran a multi-million dollar organization while also being, you know, this incredible figure mm-hmm. for the church. So they, uh, they obviously don't quite understand how powerful and impactful women can be. They don't have to be priests to have an impact. You you know, um, this is an anecdote that Monsignor Bill King told me over 10 years ago. He had to testify to the Pennsylvania House of Representatives because they were talking about the possibility of unionizing Catholic elementary schools. And it would have, it couldn't be done because our Catholic elementary schools are not set up the same way as school districts. There are right. ministries of parishes. It, it's it's apples and oranges. But he began his speech at the Pennsylvania legislature by saying, uh, "Gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, if any of you think the Catholic Church has no experience with organized labor, you've never talked to one of our old pastors who had to negotiate with Mother Superior the service of nuns in the convents and schools. And it was a labor union. <laughs> I mean, it was. I, but but I, I think of the, the, these religious sisters in my life who ministered in the name of – they're powerful, trusted, and authoritative figures. doesn't mean that they craft doctrine and church discipline. And no priest or bishop should do that. We have to hand on what's been received, okay? But, I mean, they've been – so influential. I mean, I'm a, I'm a priest. I entered the seminary when I did because Sister Rita O'Leary said to Father Rosman, with Sawicki, it's not a question of if, but when he enters seminary. And I said, she's right. I'd admit defeat. I'm going to enter seminary. I wish it were all that easy, but they're not. <laughs> <laughs> so we've talked a lot about the differences of, of being Catholic versus just being Christian um, and some of the, the practices, but there's a phrase of uh, someone being a practicing Catholic versus being a lapsed Catholic. What constitutes being a practicing Catholic? I'm going to say this. I don't think it's impossibly high to be a practicing Catholic. We don't really have that, I want to say, high of standards. I'm going to re- reference the Knights of Columbus, this wonderful international Catholic men's group uh, based in the United States and founded by uh, Blessed Michael McGivney. To be a member of the Knights of Columbus, you have to be a practical Catholic. Now, he founded the Knights of Columbus for Catholic, mostly Irish Catholic working men. Did they have to be saints? No. They had to be practical Catholics to practice their faith insofar as they could. So if you're a practical Catholic and you're a, and again, I I wish we were all saints. I wish that we all made heroic efforts in service of prayer and of holiness. How does someone do that if they're a husband or a wife with three, four, five kids? And there's been times that I've had to, as a spiritual director or a confessor, hey, your first priority is not to 
be the one to single-handedly run the parish picnic. Maybe you just need to focus on your family right now because that's the most important thing. That's your ordinary growth and holiness. Well, Father, I want to do this. I want to be the best saint possible. Well, focus on the kids and then, you know, raise good disciples and then take that to the next level. What Michael McGivney was dealing with back in the 1880s were railroad workers and mill workers who sometimes had to work seven days a week. If they didn't have that job, they couldn't support their family. What good a Catholic are they if they can't support a family? And people are living in the streets. And so how do I define a practicing Catholic? Do you fulfill your Sunday obligation insofar as you are able? Say someone's a cop and, Father, this is my job. I have to work weekends at times. Bishop Thomas Welsh, who used to be the Bishop of Allentown, relayed the story that his father worked on the railroad, could not attend Sunday Mass, but Monday morning he would attend morning Mass so he could receive the Eucharist once during the week. Did he have to do that? He's dispensed from the Sunday obligation because he had to work. And Bishop Welsh commented, like, if this is good enough for the father of a bishop. It, you know, that's a lot better than being totally isolated and not trying to practice that faith at all. So practicing Catholics, someone who tries practicing the faith in an everyday manner. The church holds out a very low bar. Attendance at the Sunday liturgy. Why is Sunday Mass important? It's more than just being a good person, more than just praying on your own. I think the Sunday celebration or Saturday evening, Sunday evening, it, it holds someone accountable to their Christian way of life. They're surrounded by both saints and sinners. It's a reality check. That way, they, the reception of the Holy Eucharist, if, insofar as they are able, if the, you know, sometimes there's things that perhaps there's a marriage issue and they cannot receive Holy Communion, but being there in the presence of the Blessed Sacrament, even if you cannot receive, there's still, I think, power there. That's why we encourage people to make visits into church, you know, whether an adoration chapel or the parish church. Are they praying as a family at home? Try to take, not just compartmentalize one hour dedicated to God, 167 other hours, you know, on a life of profligacy. No, try to per let that permeate your family life throughout the entire week. And so this is how we become saints. Little by little, we're permitting that grace to, to grow within us and then to grow out of us and to affect the people around us and our family and our neighbors. I think that the church also asks people to be supportive of the church and of her mission. And that's not just putting an envelope in. That's an easy thing. You know, it's like, well, how do you know if someone's going to mass or not? You see the envelope, not so you know how much they give, but like, are they actually coming? I'll tell people, like, even if you can't give, I don't know, really know many priests. Now, when people are looking for, you know, Catholic school tuition assistance, you do look like, are you just taking us for a ride to get discounted tuition? There's a reality there. We want to make sure that we're good stewards of what's entrusted to us. But what we want is people to have this living and active faith. What's a practicing Catholic? Are they doing it as a um, organic expression of their faith? Are they permitting it to permeate their lives? Are they receiving the sacraments as, insofar as they are able on a regular basis? Are they contributing to the life and uh, the service of the church? 
again, that's not just monetarily. That's also in what the time they give, whether it's, you know, something as simple sometimes as bringing the church bulletin home to an elderly neighbor who can no longer get to Mass so that you check in on them. And then you do that in the name of Jesus. I, I My home parish, uh, there's ladies who prepare meals and they take them to someone who's blind and otherwise cannot cook. And and I, I've seen, driving home, I see someone up, there's Maria taking a meal to so-and-so. And, and I knew what they were doing. And they do that as people in church. I mean, we do that in the name of Jesus Christ. Practicing Catholic is not being a superhero. It's this everyday practice of the faith insofar as they're able. Sometimes you have to, I have to advise older folks, yeah, it was five degrees and three inches of ice. It's okay to have missed Mass this Sunday. Father, I don't like missing. You're 93 years old and you walk to church. I'd rather you stay at home and not fall of a broken hip. Father, I felt guilty. Don't feel guilty. Go home and pray the rosary, you know? <laughs> stay home and pray the rosary. And I, because I, it's because it literally it was, da- it would be dangerous. Right. You know, and we, we don't, the church never asks the impossible of, of her parishioners. I'm going to summarize it this way. Harry Connick Jr. apparently was asked, is it true you're a practicing Catholic? And he said, you're darn right I am, and I'm going to keep practicing until I get it right. I like that. And I, I use that all the time when hearing confessions just to encourage people. Listen, we're not looking for perfection. We just have to keep trying. I love that. I love that. Just like you practice medicine, we practice being a Catholic. It's it's not it's not an exact science. I mean, and it is not an exact science because – what what's good for somebody, you know, what's what what's the teaching from Saint Paul? To some are given the gifts of administration, others tongues, others teaching. Now, that's particularly connected to the church's ministers. But all of us, not everybody can has the temperament to be a Sunday school teacher. No one has. Not everybody has the same voice to be a choir member or cantor. Nobody has the leadership skills. Not everybody has the leadership skills of being an usher. Nobody has the organizational skills to be on a parish council. But when we work together, there's that person who's a good, you know, organizational leader. And there's that other person who's like, Father, I don't like getting out in public, but I'm willing to take out the trash and put it in the dumpster at the picnic so that way the picnic grounds stay clean. When you work all together, you have success. My mom, when we were growing up, um, we lived in we lived in New Jersey before we moved out here. And my mom really wanted to be involved in the church, but my brother and I were both little. So what she would do was she volunteered to wash the cloths that oh. they used for the chalices and because she liked doing laundry. So she would she would bring those home and like once a week she would do a load of the cloths and take the, them back to church. Oh, the, the linens. I mean, that's no one sees it. But I mean, without those linens, you can't have mass no. I mean, or you, you could try, but it, it gets really inconvenient. You know, during COVID lockdown, oh, God, help us two and a half years ago, three years ago. I was the father. Brommer said, "You know, someone needs to do these these linens now." And I'm thinking, "I'll do it." <laughs> it's like oh, I know how to do it, but I mean, and and it was a learning curve, and it's amazing what's out there on YouTube as tutorials. But I mean, that's and and what I bet your mom took great pride in that. She did, and I mean, this is so because especially you know Christmas and Easter when you have multiple masses, and you look, you open up that drawer. And it's like, okay, well, we're all stocked up. We're ready to go for the mad rush, either the mar- the, the sprint of Christmas or the marathon of, of Holy Week. Uh, that's so important. And if someone's an introvert, 
you know, and that's okay. God works with that too. God works with introverts and extroverts. You know, he's he's given us these temperaments for a reason to use them for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom. We talked a little bit about introverts and uh, those people who have a relationship with God. But what if you're someone who reads the Bible and prays regularly, but doesn't go to church? Like, why do we need to go to church if we have the Bible? The Bible is kind of like a user manual. It's not an end in and of itself. It leads us to a deeper relationship with Jesus. And Jesus calls us to have that relationship, not just with him, but with his body on earth, which is the church. And the Sunday celebration, and I say the Sunday celebration, again, knowing that maybe there are people who work on weekends, nurses, whatnot, they, you know, they can't make the last chance mass, you know, that's the point of connection. That's the point of challenge when you're surrounded by other saints and sinners. The Lord asks us to keep holy the Sabbath day, and in the authority of the church, it interprets that as the Sunday celebration of the Eucharist. Now, in the Eastern Christian churches, sometimes they have Vesper services that could also fulfill a Sunday obligation. In the Latin church, we ask for the celebration of the Eucharist, the Mass. One time, my very first year in seminary, an old Monsignor in Philadelphia gave us the evening day of reflect, day of recollection. It was an overnight. In that evening conference, he said, you know, fellas, every night I go over to the church and I kneel down in front of the tabernacle. I open the door and I pray to Jesus. And I look at the Blessed Sacrament in that tabernacle and I pray. And it was just really profound. It was really sweet. He was a guy, mid-70s, one of the Monsignors Meehan. There were like three Monsignors Meehan or Fathers Meehan in Philadelphia. And the one he's taught and he's praying, he's saying to us, I pray and it's amazing what your heart opens up to at the end of the day when speaking to the Blessed Sacrament. And it's amazing what he'll say back to you, especially after two Manhattans. And then the entire chapel erupted, okay? And you know, he, he added a little bit of humor in there, right? Uh, he, he was not drunkenly praying to the Lord. I mean, just added, it's, it's okay to laugh as Catholics, right? But left to our own devices, we can convince ourselves that this is what the Lord asks of us but once we're confronted with the wider church, we realize, oh, maybe this is not what's being asked of me. Because someone could come and say, Father, I believe God is calling me to do this. And then the rest of the community of believers says, well, this is a lousy idea, or this is impractical, or this sounds really good, but we don't know if it's actually as pertinent or helpful as someone may think it is. And I think that that's one of the realities of why the church asks for not just personal prayer, which she asks for, but communal prayer, because we don't exist in a vacuum. We exist as a body, and we're trying to move together in that pilgrim, in the, in the pilgrim path to the kingdom. Um, and I th and I think that that's I, that's how I always say to people like this is why we don't just do this alone. We have to do this in concert with each other. And we do that. That point of reference is the Sunday celebration. That makes a lot of sense that it's not, we're not on a journey by ourselves necessarily. It's, it's, it's a communion. We're in community with the other people in church. But I want to talk a little bit more about the Bible because it's considered a book without error, but it's also like a book of poetry and history and truth. It's not just like a total encyclopedia, but it's inspired by God and it's written by human hands. Well, 
the Bible may be without error, but humans, we, we are full of error. And if we're in charge of writing what God told us to, how do we know that the Bible is all true and not embellished, especially after it's been copied and translated so many times? That's an excellent question. And one of the problems with the question is we have to put it in the context, especially of Martin Luther in 1517 and the Protestant Reformation. Now, we should say this. Remember that Martin Luther was not the first of the reformers. He's the first that he's the one that began the Reformation. But there was Jan Hus and John Wycliffe and then um, the other, like the Moravians uh, as a Christian denomination. There, there were pre-Reformation Protestants. They just didn't pick up as much traction. And it was over the question of authority. Who has the authority to interpret the scriptures? And in the Catholic Church, we say the church has the authority to interpret Scripture. What really took root with Martin Luther and Calvin and Zwingli was the individual Christian, just based on the clear meaning of Scripture, that the Scripture itself, its meaning is clear. It interprets itself, except they couldn't agree on what the clear meaning was, which is why you had you ended up with different, what they call the magisterial, magisterial reformers, you know, you had the Heidelberg Catechism and the Augsburg Catechism as two different expressions in Germany of the magisterial. And then you had the non-magisterial reformers, which was kind of more almost anarchical with the Anabaptists and other ones that were f- sweeping through in, in Europe. And it began because they said, well, every Christian has the ability to interpret Scripture. Well, it's like I always like say when, when you have an American cult or some kooky sect of Christianity in the United States, and people, people would say, this is just horrible. Why isn't something done about this? I'll say, P.O.D., problems of democracy, separation of church and state. And Protestantism, in a certain sense, is kind of woven into American DNA, okay? And even, you know, the founding fathers and some of the first preachers up in New England, like sinners in the hands of an angry God, people might remember this from, you know, fresh uh, junior year American uh, literature in high school, okay? Well, that's kind of in the American DNA and the use of sometimes the misuse of scripture to put forth a political agenda. Okay. So that question of, you know, how can we trust the Bible kind of is rooted from as an outgrowth of the Protestant Reformation, which made the statement, every Christian can interpret the scripture on his or her own because the sense is clear, except if it was clear, you wouldn't have hundreds of variations on this. We've unfortunately run out of time, but if you'd like to hear the rest of this episode, you can listen to us anytime on Spotify under Candid Catholic Convos, or you can download this episode from our website at hbgdiocese.org. Thank you so much for listening. Our goal at the Diocese of Harrisburg is to walk with you on your faith journey. So if this episode resonated with you in any way, the easiest way to show your appreciation is by sharing this program with your network or by leaving a review on your listening platform. You can also support us financially by making a donation online at hbgdiocese.org slash D-A-C and clicking the make a donation button. Thanks again, and we'll see you at church on Sunday.